Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. It's so good to be back after a couple of weeks off. So today I'm really excited as we're going to jump into um, a new book, the book of James or Yaakov. But um, who of you knows that um, if you turn to your scriptures, I've got, this is the new King Jimmy here, the new King James. I I like to um, bring it with me because it's got a lot of my pencil notes over the years. But um, who, who here understands that the little introductions that you get before you go into a book, they are not suffice for what we are about to do these next few weeks. So please bear with me if I don't follow the introductions in, the, in these commentary scriptures that we've had in the 20th century, whether it be the NIV, the New King James, or whatnot. Because, as I've said so many times before, a text out of context creates a pretext and error begets error. It is so huge for us to truly grasp, before we even get into chapter and verse, what on earth was going on at the writing of this book? What was going on in the culture? What was going on in the surrounding vicinity? What was going on with the people? Who are the people? Who is the author? It's so important that we understand that. So today I'm going to do an introduction, and forgive me, we're not going to get into much chapter and verse but we will in the commencing weeks. But it is so important that we spend this time. So I hope that if you do have your scriptures, which I know you all do, have your pencil, take notes because it's going to help you get the right vision of the word that we're going to unpack. Because who knows, if you go in with the wrong vision, then you're going to come out with some 20th 21st century or 20th century Christian dogma, and you're going to drown in doctrine. We do not want that, right? Because this is not 21st century religion. That's not going to suffice for us in these days that we're living. I need, you need the power of the Ruach HaKodesh and the unpacking of the word so that we can face what we need to face in these days ahead. And what I see as I go through these books is the wheel within a wheel within a wheel. I truly see how what happened when the saints refused to go in at Kadesh Barnea. And though they changed their mind and they said, oh, we'll go up tomorrow... If you don't do what Yahuwah wants you to do when he calls you to do it, timing is everything, then you will be bypassed. You will die a physical death of judgment, which will come in this world, and then it will go on to the next generation, and they'll get the blessings. That was the first wheel that then happened with the second wheel just before 70 of the common era. And I believe personally, and I've taught this for many years, that we are the third wheel generation that is going to face the same tests The same judgment because I do not believe that our culture, our economy, and the religious lies can sustain themselves any longer in this generation, that we are in that third wheel of prophecy. So when we go into the book of Yaakov, the book of James, is it something far back in history that has nothing to do with you and I today? No, it has everything to do with our very lives. So we better be facing it with the right 
glasses and not just rip a page out of the introduction to James in our new King James or NIV, because that is not going to be sufficient. So all that to say this, let's get into what was going on with this book, because quite honestly, it is powerful. It is super powerful. Yaakov, James, a servant of Elohim, and the master Yahusha Hamoshiach, to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersions, greetings. That tells you a lot right there, doesn't it? So who is the author? Who is the author? Ikabus, Ikabus, or Jacobus. So how on earth did we end up with James? Well, in Hebrew, it would be Yaakov, Yaakov. But of course, those of you who know a little bit about the language, there is no Y in the Greek. Yaakov in the Hebrew, there's no Y in the Greek. So what are you going to do? You're going to change it to Ikabos, Ikabos. So Yaakov became Ikabos in the Greek, but James doesn't come from the Greek. It comes to us from the Latin. So Ikabos in the Greek became Jacobus, Jacobus, and then the Latin language, as it progressed over time, the Jacobus, the B, became an M, Jacobus, Jacobus. So then we ended up with Jacobus, and finally, that then changed into the English James. You see how this progression of language? So I'm going to go with Yaakov, if that's okay with you. I prefer that. So Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahusha. Now, during Yahusha's life, we know that Yaakov was an infidel, wasn't he? He wasn't a believer. And, and the whole family, they, were, they weren't believers, his brothers. They weren't believers that Yahusha was the Moshiach. Yochanan, John chapter 7 informs us. But he became a believer. He became a believer as a result of the resurrection that transformed resurrection because he saw the post-resurrected Yahusha appear to him. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians about this in chapter 15. What's the location of this book? Well, Yaakov was in or around the vicinity of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. But really, it's not a book. It's really not even a letter. You may hear many people say the book of James or the letter of James. It really isn't intended to be a letter. It really wasn't intended to be a book. It's actually a homily. It's like a sermon. It was meant to be heard. And you can tell that as we get into the language. You can see some linguistic techniques that are used that it was an oration because the way the structure of the language is that it was meant to be heard. There is rhyme within the very text itself. What was the audience? The audience, it was to a Hebrew audience, but they were very Hellenized. They were a Hellenized audience whose recipients resided outside of Jerusalem in the diaspora, in the diaspora, and with a substantial amount of them were actually living in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. 
including many Jewish believers, because many at the time of this writing, as we will get in, they had fled Jerusalem. Why? Because there was something dreadful had happened. In fact, there had been the martyrdom, the first martyr of the Brit Hadashah, of course, Stephen. He was the first martyr. After his martyrdom, many of the believers, they fled Jerusalem. They went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They fled the land, and they were the dispersed covenant people of Yahweh. And we even know that Stephen himself was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. That we know from the sixth chapter of Acts. So what's the point in this book? What is it about? What is Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahushua, so close to our Mashiach? What was he trying to communicate? He was trying to communicate the persecution that was going on amongst the saints. The persecution. This homily it is very rich in its Jewish or Hebraic atmosphere. It permeates throughout the text with Old Testament examples throughout the text. In fact, it comes to us with Jewish and wisdom literature coursing through the very verses, the very veins of the verses. You're going to see that. Now, the meeting place of the assembly was still called the synagogue, episynagogue. So we know that they weren't in some church. This was the saints, the true faith. They were still congregating in a very Hebraic lifestyle at the synagogue on Shabbat, meaning they were still keeping Shabbat. They were still keeping the feasts of Yahuwah, and they were still obviously keeping the dietary requirements. Otherwise, there would have been mayhem at the Oneg after the Shabbat service, right? So these are things that you know just from reading the text. This all becomes very evident. We also know that the oneness, the echad, the plurality, the shema was very much a part. The echad, the oneness of Elohim, we see was very important to the audience. Chapter 2, verse 19. What is really fascinating, which I would which what draw me to wanting to teach this scripture is knowing that it is absent of any self-consciously Christian theology. It's got no Christian theology in this book. That's why Martin Luther couldn't stand it and he added it as an appendix to his scrolls because it doesn't have highbrow theology. It doesn't have any of the Christian trappings in it whatsoever. We can see even the use of the feminine term adulterous, adulterous, in chapter 4, verse 4. That would make no sense, no sense whatsoever to the audience unless they were well acquainted with the Tanakh. It would make no sense to them at all. Because we see that the author is likening the book of the covenant people and their marriage and then their subsequent adultery at the golden calf as very, very telling. And this is the theme that permeates the text. Also, the use of the the word law also presupposes that the audience is very familiar with what this law is because 
They've got no questions about its relevance to them, do they? No questions whatsoever. You see, the book is so distinctive in its Hebrew character, it's in keeping with the portrait of James given in Acts chapter 15, Marseh Lachim, the Acts of the Apostles 15, and Marseh Lachim, Acts chapter 21. This book contains more than 40 allusions, 40 allusions from the Tanakh and four direct quotes. So there is your Hebraic background. Now the object to this homily, and which really is so refreshing in this crazy world that we live in. The object of this book is not, thank goodness, the unpacking of Christology or theology. It's not. But it's to force meditation and reflection within. This book isn't trying to get us to intellectualize the faith. Faith, excuse me. It's not about theology. It's about us doing the inward work, as Yahushua said, doing the inward work, meditation, reflection within, forming an outward change to behavior. That is what Yaakov wants from his audience, to strengthen the faith of the believers in the midst of persecution. That's what I want. That's what you want, isn't it? When tough times head our way, I don't need the right theology. I need the strengthening of my faith that I can stand. Right? And that's what I need. I spent years getting the right theology, but it is the faith that enables me to stand, that equips me in the life that you and I as the saints lead. Because brethren, it is getting more raw out there, isn't it? Raw. Peeling off the scabs of the lies of religion. The lies, you just stand out more and more and you become a sore to people, do you not? Chafe them the wrong way. So we can see that this homily was to strengthen the faith of the believers in the midst of persecution, because they were being persecuted by the wealthy Jewish elite class who were guilty of defrauding and oppressing them. Listen, this book was written because why? People were being oppressed by the wealthy Jewish elite class. They were defrauding them and they were oppressing them. Do you see the third wheel that we're in? It is the super rich. I'm not talking the rich, but the multi-billionaires, the political campaigns. These people like Al Gore that try and get you and I so that we have to drive around in a Prius while they're flying around in their jets trying to what? Oppress us by defrauding us, whether it's through Obamacare and what they're doing with the Federal Reserve. It is now, we're in the same predicament. It's this wealthy New World Order elite class of globalism that is trying to defraud the saints. We've never experienced it like anything else in the history of mankind. The deception that we live in today. I went to my lawyer this week, and she said to me, the law isn't about justice. The law is about the law. Because I had righteous indignation. I said, I want justice. 
I want to shine the light in the darkness. And she's like, well, Matthew, you can do that if you want. But understand, the law is not about justice. What do you mean the law is not about justice? Because it's a man-made law of wickedness. The Torah of Yahuwah is right, zadik, and perfect. But the laws of men, they're about the laws of men, right? The Torah of the Nephilim. Thank you. That's exactly, what's that? The wicked devices of men. What a world that we live in. So yes, we do need the strengthening that this homily has. It's about us to focus not on creed, but conduct. Not on belief, but behavior. Not on doctrine, but deed. That's powerful. Practical living for the pragmatic priesthood of the Kedoshim. Now, of course, the language is very Septuagintal, with only 13 words in James that aren't found in the Septuagint, giving the Greek a very, very Semitic feel as you go through this. It was written, I believe, and I know many people will want to push back on this, I have done my due diligence. I believe it was written originally in the Greek, borrowing from the wisdom literature of Sirach, wisdom of Solomon, and Proverbs, Mishle. Now, many in the Messianic movement will push for a Hebrew or Aramaic primacy, but if Yaakov's audience, think about it, is in the diaspora, dispersed following Stephen's martyrdom, This argument to me holds very little weight because what was the language of the international community? It was Septuagint or Greek. So it makes sense to me that was the language of the diaspora. This was written to the diaspora. It would be written in a language that would reach the most people. But it does have a very Semitic feel because it's Septuagintal. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it is written, And Shaul, Shaul was approving of Zephaniah, Stephen's death. And at the time, there was a great persecution against the congregation of Israel at Yerushalayim. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Yehuda and Shomrom, except the Shlechim, except the apostles. So I believe we can see right now what was going on at the time of the writing. Now, Marseh Shlechim, Acts 11, verse 19, it is written, Now they who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose over Zephaniah, Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. That persecution caused many to leave Yerushalayim and go into the dispersion. Now, when was this book, this homily, sermon, if you will, written? Well, first Yochanan and first Kiefer, Kiefer Aleph, they knew James or the traditions that were used in it. And it makes a strong case, I believe, can be made for literary dependence. Because they seem to be expanding on the material that is actually found within the homily of Yaakov. This means that Yaakov, the homily of James, can't date from the second century. And it must be at least mid-first century. But we can dig even deeper than that. Because Clement, 
Clement knows and he uses James, which again rules out the second century. It can't date, in this case, after 90 of the common era. But we can dig even deeper than that. We can narrow it down further because we know that Yaakov was martyred in 62 of the common era. So it can't be after that unless you take, of course, the liberal view that it is pseudepigraphical, which I don't. So this book, again, I believe we can take even earlier than that because the book doesn't contain any of the later first century developed doctrines of the New Testament. There's no developed doctrines. That's what I love about this book. You're not going to get into highbrow Christology. You're not going to get into the theology of Paul. It's raw. It's very raw. And it really is about impacting and changing your life. And that's what I need. Too many years of highbrow theology for this boy. So that brings us to somewhere between 40 and 50 of the common era, which, if that's the case, makes James the oldest New Testament book that's been penned. Myself, I even believe it's earlier than that, between 34 and 35 of the common era, based upon the uncooked message within. And who loves an uncooked message? I can't stand when they start cooking up the faith. You know what I mean? It's like you're cooking it up, trying to serve me up your stuff. I want it raw. I want it uncooked. And that's why I decided I wanted to teach this particular book, because I like it uncooked. I just tear it up. <laughs> I do. I do. Think about it. The conversion of Paul could have taken place in about 34 of the common era, could it not? Leaving about a year for the, the events of Acts 1 to Acts 9. Because nothing in this homily goes beyond Acts 1 to 9. Nothing does. To me, it establishes a date as early as 34 of the common era. I'll go out on a limb and say about 34 of the common era. So all of that as an introduction with the history, what was going on at the time as we enter into this book or homily of Yaakov. But what about us? We live in America with a K, right? America. Two Ks. Man, 1776. I mean, so much has happened. So it's so different. So we talk about the introduction to what was going on in the time of the writing of the homily of James. What about how will we be remembered? America. 2016, 200-odd years after 1776. This isn't a nation that was founded with the political structure of the pilgrims. Yes, the pilgrims came over in the 1600s, right? But by the time of 1776, it had been taken over by an esoteric Christian hybrid of Masonic ritual bloodletting. Look at the architecture in Washington, D.C. Look at the currency. So what we have now, I like what you said, are the laws of the Nephilim 
come to their full fruition of hating, hating the living one true Elohim, Yahuwah. Even the Christian church has become so corrupt that Caitlyn Jenner or whatever the hell that person's name is, whoever she, he is, can be in a prayer circle in a Christian church. And this is acceptable. This is outrageous. We live in a world where the boundaries are being blended, where there is no distinction, but we serve an Elohim of distinctions. That is what makes us so different. We, we serve an Elohim of distinctions. This is kadosh. This is profane. Tamei tachor, clean and unclean. Righteousness, unrighteousness. This is a set-apart day. This is a common day. This is food. This is not food. This is the Elohim that we serve. This is life. This is death. And people can have all those ideas. And all I come back and say is this. I serve the Elohim of life. Is what you are doing producing life or death? That's what it comes down to. Does it produce anything or is it producing death? And we have come to a time now where we will see, I believe, the rise and fall of an empire. Just as the audience that Yaakov spoke to. And I say this in all seriousness with fear and trembling. I believe that we will witness, and it could be this year, the rise and fall of an empire, at least politically. Economically, we're on the precipice. And religiously, there are people that sign off their emails with blessings from God, and they're serving the God of this world. That's why it's so important that we take a stand for his name, because I don't serve God. I serve Yahuwah. The one true Elohim. There's a big difference. There is a big difference. If you serve God, then you serve mammon and you serve man's laws, the laws of the Nephilim. I'm going to use that. I like that a lot. Let's talk about the downplaying, the downplaying of James in Christian tradition. Because isn't it interesting when you're in the church, they're always downplaying James and elevating Paul. It's all about Paul. Oh, yeah, well, not about James. Why? Because he was a zealot. Zealots have shown the back door very quickly, as most of you have found out, myself included. Zealots, those that are radical and stand up for all people of all walks of life, no matter what your social economic status are, are usually shown the back door, especially when you get radical about the true scriptural text. Well, show me the next verse. Well, the language doesn't say that. No, let's go and cross-reference this with another chapter and another verse. What? You can't do that. Believe in the doctrine and dogma and shit down and shut up. Right? No. No. It's not. It's not. So the downplaying of James, I think, is very important for us to understand as we get into this narrative, not only where doctrine is concerned, but also it becomes clear that James is, listen, James is actually the head, or in the Greek, the episcopate of the Jerusalem assembly. Well, hang on a minute. 
Let's not just brush through that. I just said, according to the writings, James, Yaakov, is the head in the Greek, the episcopate, where we get the episcopal, the episcopate of the Jerusalem assembly. So the true faith, the true faith of the first century community was superior. Yaakov was superior according to those saints in the first century. Yaakov was superior to both Peter and Paul. That's huge because you've got a whole religion, the Catholics, that will what? Elevate Peter. In fact, they'll bring Jupiter into the bloody Vatican and have you all come and shine his shoes and kiss his feet. It's a statue of Jupiter that they tell you is Peter. You guys have seen it. It's outrageous. And people believe this stuff. The elevation of Peter and Paul, when in reality the episcopate went to Yaakov. But why has a church, a tradition, a religion denigrated Yaakov because he was zealous for the Torah. You can't have that. So they elevate the highbrow theology of Paul and Peter rather than the raw radicalization of Yaakov, James the Just. Do you see that? Very interesting. So we can even see that Paul and Peter defer, they actually defer to James's authority and headship. You can see that in Galatia, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. They defer to James's headship, which is extremely problematic for the Catholic Church. Extremely problematic. The favoring of Paul has been huge for two millennia. The tendency of the institutionalized church is to favor the Pauline letters and what's regarded as their heavy theology. Paul is extremely heavy, is he not, in his theology? Rather than what we would see as Yaakov James, who is extremely primitive. I like the primitive. I like that. Martin Luther came along, of course, and then he flamed the fans during the Reformation years by assigning James to an appendix in his German translation of the Bible, naming it a right story epistle. That's what he named it. A right story epistle he did. Because he didn't quite know what to do with the book of James, so he stuck it in the back because it didn't match his theology. How many of you have been stuck in the back because you didn't match the church's theology? Near the back fire escape, most probably, right? You see, in the modern era, the book of James, it doesn't fare any better. It does not fare any better with the commentary by John Eliot. This is what John Eliot says about the book of James in his commentary. It is ranked amongst the junk mail of the New Testament. That's bloody outrageous, isn't it? I'd like to slap him, silly. But this book was very popular, very popular amongst the Eastern Fathers, particularly in Alexandria, with the first commentary being penned by Didymus the Blind in 313 to 398 
of the common era in Alexandria. Didymus the Blind was the first chap to come out with a commentary on the homily of James. Now we can tell that it is Greek in its structural rhythm and rhyme, and James's penchant for alteration and wordplay, alliteration, excuse me, and wordplay. When we become aware of these, um, these devices, these rhetorical devices within the Greek, it becomes to me nearly impossible, nearly impossible to imagine that this homily was a translation of the Aramaic or the Hebrew because you would miss all this wordplay. I believe it was put together with these rhetorical... And that's about it. Good night. Let's talk about the death of Yaakov. The death of Yaakov. Now, Josephus records that James's death was between the reigns of two Roman procurators in Judea. In 61 of the Common Era, we had Festus. Now, he took office and died. You can see that in Acts the book of Acts. Now, in 62 of the Common Era, Albinus, he was dispatched to Judea. But there's this gap, you see. In the gap between the two procurators, the high priest, Ananias, Ananias, son of Annas, and that's the same Annas who was involved in the trial with Yahushua, he was unleashed and he had no Roman controls on him because he was in the gap between the two procurators. Very dangerous to have a corrupt high priest with no one manning him at the controls, right? And that's what we find at this time. He then accused Yaakov of violating the law. Yaakov, of course, taught the Book of the Covenant division upholding the Zedek. He ordered him to be stoned. Josephus then goes on to attribute the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem to the stoning and death of Yaakov. The martyrdom of Yaakov is connected to the destruction of the temple, according to Josephus. Now, Hegesippus... I mean, these are some great names for your babies. Hegesippus, Eusebius. I mean, what's up with this? We've got a Yaakov, a Yochanan, a Yosef, but I don't see any Hegesippus in the house. Hegesippus in the house. That's some, I, come on, you go to Starbucks and say, what's your name? I have the double large. Yeah, it's for Hegesippus. Yeah, shout that one out in righteousness and holiness on that bloody idol on the cup. I don't even go there anymore, right? We put, had to put a sticker over it, didn't we? Because the kids, some girl, our babysitter came in with that. Never met us before, you know? First time walks into our house and the kids just, boom, they're right. You've got an idol on your cup! <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, we're homeschooling family. I mean, my goodness, crazy. <laughs> You've got an idol in your cup. She's like, whoa, okay, I'll see you later. You didn't touch the mezuzah when you came in. That- the what? The bazooka, no, the mezuzah. I mean, crazy, this is what people think. We're radical. We're normal. We're normal, honest. Hegesippus in the house and Eusebius, they give us way more detail and states, he give me a couple of weeks off and you better watch out. Hegesippus and Eusebius, they do give us a lot more detail on how James's arrest Ananias, actually, Ananias, that's a, yes, Ananus, 
Ananias? Ananus. Huh? Hananiah? Hananiah. Yes. We need some linguists in the house. Ananus presented Yaakov with an option. He presented him with an option. You see, at Passover, Ananus presented Yaakov with this option. And Yaakov, James, he took him up. Ananus said to him, it's Passover. We've got over 100,000 people in Yerushalayim. And you have caused a stir with your zealotry for Yahusha. We will kill you unless you go up on top of the pinnacle of the temple and in front of everybody in Passover, this 100,000 people. You go up onto the temple pinnacle and you renounce the faith of Yahusha and the Malki Zedek priesthood. And you know what Yaakov does? He says, sign me up. And he agrees. He goes up onto the pinnacle of the temple in front of over 100,000 people at Passover. And he just starts teaching righteousness and he uses it to teach the truth. He does not renounce. He does not recant. So Ananus kicks him off the top of the temple. He lands on the temple steps and they stone him to death. That's the way to go. I mean, I mean, there's better ways to go. But, you know, if you're going to go for righteousness, I mean, he proclaimed the truth and used that as an opportunity to witness to over 100,000 people at the Passover, according to the historians Eusebius and Hegosippus. But there was also at that time a wall. A wall had been built by the followers of Yaakov, the Malkit Zedek saints. The Malkit Zedek priests, they had built a wall to block the Herodian king, Herod Agrippa II. He was between 49 and 93 of the common era. They had built this wall. It was called the Temple Wall Affair. They built this wall to prevent... Herod Agrippa from viewing the temple sacrifices because what he would do is he would recline upon his balcony with effeminates and whores and get drunk and view the temple sacrifices that the Zadokites, the Malkit Zadoks, were so abhorred and outraged at this that they built this wall and it was called the Temple Wall Affair and this is what led directly to to the death of Yaakov, according to Hegesippus and Eusebius. And do you think, do you think that it's going to be any different in our generation? What does it say in Giliana in Revelation? That the two witnesses, that they will be, you know that these political pundits, they'll be reclining, watching it on TV with their effeminates, their debauchery. It's entertainment to them. It's despicable. There's nothing new under the sun. 
They want to make you and I what? A gazing stock, it says in the book of Hebrews. A gazing stock. That's the society that we live on, that live in. They just would want to look at it on our iPhones, you know? No different. It takes the righteous putting up a wall, putting up a defense and saying no. You don't get to look in and see what we're doing. Because we have a separate Kadosh holy community. You will not infiltrate within our walls. So, let me read to you about the life of James from Hegesippus. It's extremely interesting because James's Yaakov's piety was well known. He was referred to, as many of you know, as camel knees. I said camel knees, not camel jockey. He was camel knees. He was referred to camel knees because why? Because he would raise himself up on his knees and lower himself on his knees just as a camel does. A camel raises itself on its knees and lowers itself on its knees before it gets down and before it gets up. Hegesippus wrote this. He drank neither wine nor fermented liquors, and abstained from animal food. A razor never came upon his head. He never anointed with oil and never used a public mikvah. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found upon his bended knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees became as hard as a camel's in consequence of his habitual supplication and kneeling before Elohim. That's the position that you and I all need to take, isn't it? Later, he was venerated as the first bishop of Yerushalayim, and he was given the title Zadik, the righteous or the just, because of his faithfulness to the Torah and his constancy in prayer. In fact, Hegesippus portrays Yaakov as a zealot associated with the Ebionites, the Ebionites who regarded Paul with disfavor and they extolled Yaakov as the true heir of Yahushua's teachings. That Yaakov was the true heir of Yahushua's teachings. It's very important now that I set the stage with this because like I say, the Catholic Church has covered this up for 2,000 years. And that is that Yaakov was elected to the episcopate. The episcopate. This is the missing history of Yaakov. Yaakov is the undisputed, listen, he is the undisputed successor to Yahusha. He is the bishop of bishops or the archbishop or the archapostolos, the pillar of the community of the saints. What he says is very important to us because it is the closest that you're going to get to the words of Yahusha, the thoughts of Yahusha, and the lifestyle of Yahusha without any highbrow Christology or theology. Yaakov Zadik, James the Just, the zealot leader. He was a radical, a zealot leader. I have no doubt that Yahusha himself was the zealot king and his half-brother Yaakov was appointed the zealot commander after Yahusha's appearance post-resurrection. There's strong parallels, strong parallels indeed between the community led by Yaakov 
and the one reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls that many of you may have read. Yaakov was embraced as the teacher of righteousness, the Morei Zadik in the Hebrew, the Morei Zadik, attested to in the Dead Sea Scrolls post-resurrection generation. That was Yaakov, the Morei Zadik, the teacher of righteousness. Now, the election of Yaakov as leader of the early assembly, that is what is missing from Scripture as we have it. You see, this is the real event. Listen, this is the real event behind the election of the 12th apostle. This is the real event behind the election of the 12th apostle. Everybody focus on the election of Matthias, right? After Judas betrayed. Everyone looks at Matthias. But the real event behind that is the election of Yaakov to the episcopate or bishop, the successor. That's where it comes from. But people miss that. They miss that. You see, Matthias, yes, he did come by election to succeed Judas or Judas the assassin. In the Hebrew, it would be Yahuda Sikari or Judas Iscariot. It means he was Judas the assassin. He was a zealot assassin that had the sicker, the small dagger within his cloak, and he would go and they, the sicker, the assassins, they would then go and kill those of the New World Order. I'm not advocating that, but that is what they would do. The Herodians and the Romans. That is, that is the reality. That is history. That is what the Sicari or the assassins, Judas the assassin, would have done in that time. Now, Yaakov, not Paul, not Peter, was the successor to Yahusha, is what I'm trying to emphasize. And to me... It's always been about the hijacking of the priesthood, hasn't it? So the priesthood is hijacked by the Catholic Church. We've got the Pope as the Vicar of Christ. We've got Peter, which is Jupiter, really in the Vatican. And you're shining his shoes and kissing his feet. And you're really kissing Jupiter or Zeus, the pagan son. I mean, this is outrageous. It goes back to the hijacking of the priesthood. And we're having to deal with it again in our modern era, aren't we? With all these Levitical hierarchy, Torah twisting interpretations, and it's all going to end up with the New World Order up in Jerusalem at their man-made temple with the Zionist Bolshevik Illuminati. I mean, this is the same thing, hijacking of the priesthood. But we need to look and see that Yaakov's position was as successor to Yahusha. And it appears in numerous accounts of early church literature before that infamous Council of Nicaea, where everything went terribly wrong. Of course, Clement of Alexandria, Hegesippus, as conserved in Eusebius, the pseudo-Clementines and the Gospel of Thomas all testify to Yaakov's ascension as the Zadik. Not Peter, not Paul, and certainly not the Pope. Yahusha is asked by his Talmudim in the Gospel of Thomas this, After you have gone, who will be great over us? 
Yahusha answers, In the place where you are to go, go to James the just, who, for whose sakes heaven and earth have come into existence. That's from the Gospel of Thomas 12. Now, in Eusebius, ecclesiastical history, it says thus, James, who was surnamed the just by the forefathers on account of his superlative virtue, was the first to have been elected to the office of bishop of the Jerusalem church. Now, hippotyposis, not hippopotamus, but hippotyposis says this, Peter, James, and John, after the ascension of the Savior, did not contend for the glory, even though they had previously been honored by the Savior, but elected James the just as bishop of Jerusalem. And then Clement adds that the election was by the principal three, Peter, James the disciple, and John. They're the ones that elected Yaakov. Now the central triad has been changed. It's no longer Peter, James, and John of Yahusha's transfiguration, right? But rather James the just. Remember at Yahusha's transfiguration, they were squabbling over, well, who's going to be the greatest, right? See, now that central triad has been changed to the pillar of Yaakov the just. They took the master's words to heart, did they not? Remember what the master told the triad in Luke chapter 9, verse 46? Well, they must have taken his words to heart, don't you think? Now, Eusebius, he acknowledges the two Jameses. Now, there were two Jameses, he says, one called the righteous, who was cast down from the pinnacle of the temple and beaten to death with a laundryman's club, and the other who was beheaded. Phineas reigns on the parade of those who would say that the Malkitzedic priesthood is limited to heaven and not open to you on earth. There's people that say that today. Oh, the Malkitzedic priesthood, that's not for today. That's limited to heaven. It's not for you on earth. How many of you have heard that nonsense from wrestling and twisting the scriptures to their own destruction? They would come out with a comment like that. But Phineas reigns on their parade with this. The first to whom the Lord entrusted his throne upon the earth. The mantle or throne of the Malkitzedic priesthood is entrusted on earth. That is what history and scripture testify to. But people don't want you to have that. They don't want you to. They want you to be subservient to the Levitical hierarchy so that they can do what? Lead you up to the temple mount destruction. The very thing that the Apostle Paul says is coming in these last days. Yaakov was in the kingly line. He was seated in Jerusalem, the head of the 70, the Jerusalem assembly. This presents something of a problem to the institutionalized church because they buried this for millennia. The direct appointment of James, not Peter, as the successor to his half-brother Yahusha. And what's more, it's upheld by everything we know of the groups that were expelled from Orthodox Christianity. And you and I, 
We're expelled from orthodox Christianity with our beliefs, aren't we? So this shows you that you are on the right narrow path. You see, I just want to expose the errors of this Pauline Christianity that so many of us had thrust upon us for years. I really do. Because I want the light of the Jameson belief to be known. Because it's about the fight for the ascendancy to the presidency, priesthood, and political Jerusalem in our day. That's what it was like in James's day. Who was fighting for the ascendancy of the presidency, the priesthood, and the political structure of Jerusalem of the day? Well, Yaakov, James the Just, he was the righteous one. But the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all trying to fight for that. But truly, the one that was appointed was anointed. And so many of you, You need to just walk in your appointed anointing. And when you're appointed and anointed in it, then no weapon formed against you can prosper. Walk in your anointing. I was speaking to Brother John before I came up today, and I said many people come to me and say, Brother, I don't know how you do it week in and week out. I couldn't do it unless I was called. But because I'm called, I can do it. But I can't do what Brother John does because that's not my calling. I don't know how he does what he does. And others of you do what you do in the worship because that's your calling. If you walk in your calling, you will be empowered and energized. But if you try to do something that's not in your calling, you will be demoralized, de-energized, and defeated. So if you're doing something and you feel like, oh, it's a burden, it's not your calling. Don't do it. You're trying to do something. But if it's your calling, you can't help but do it. You will be energized and radicalized when you do it, that you can't help but do it. It's your passion. It's everything. That's a calling. That's an anointing. And that is an appointing. Not Jupiter, but Yaakov, James the Just. It's amazing. I said this when we were finishing up Hebrews, and it's sobering and true. There was a political leader in England because England's gone to hell in a handbasket. They just appointed a Muslim mayor of London. And um, the Labour, one of the head, I think it was the head of the Labour Party, he quoted an historical fact. Doesn't matter whether you, I always use this analogy, I don't give a rip if you don't believe in gravity. I don't care. You go up onto the corner of this roof. Yeah, it doesn't matter that you don't believe in it. You step off the corner of this roof, you're going to hit the deck because it's a reality. I don't care if you don't believe in historical truth. The reality is it happened. Get used to it. Or do you believe in sacred history? So the head of the Labour Party, he said an historical truth that Hitler was actually supportive of emigration to Palestine and he was supportive of the Zionistic movement. 
That's historical truth. It's documented. You might not like it because it doesn't match with your sacred history. But the Labour Party head actually quoted this. He said this publicly, silly boy. Well, he just got slammed, especially now with a Muslim mayor in London. And um, it's caused mayhem in England that you can't quote real history for the sake of offending people. And when you do, people will call you nasty names to try and shut you up because their sacred history is offended. This is the world. You now get tried not by truth and justice, George Orwell, 1984. You get tried on the courts of public opinion. And it causes people to bow down, kowtown and shut up because they're afraid. Because you're afraid of social being a social outcast because you believe historical truth. Because you actually do your due diligence. You study the scripture. You go back into history and you speak truth. And then you are tried in the courts of public opinion because the public is uneducated and ill-equipped for the truth. And the truth is such an insult to a wicked, depraved and warped culture that what you're saying, they can't even grasp because they have been spoon-fed lies from birth. Santa is coming down the chimney tonight. Hang on a minute. You are lying to your children and teaching your children that you lie to them and now you're questioning why you have problems. Jamie. And then when my kid is in the church group and says, that's a bunch of hooey, that you try and stifle them? This is what happens, is it not? Is it not? Outrageous. Speak out, speak truth. Sacred history wants us to believe the lies. And in this case... Sacred history wants us to believe that the Romans burnt down and destroyed the temple in 70 of the Common Era. How many of you have been taught that sacred history? It was the Romans that came in. It was Titus. He came in and he burnt down the temple. Who's been teaching you that? The Jews, which aren't the Jews... We won't get into that. And the Christian church that has been corrupted and hijacked since the third century. That's who's been teaching you that. And it's sacred history. It's a lie. No, Titus did not come in and burn down the temple of Jerusalem. These Levitical pimps, and I know I offend some of you when I say that. Too bad. When they came in, they they perpetrate this rubbish. How many of you have heard this still by by teachers today in the Messianic movement? Oh, yes, it was Titus that came in and destroyed and burnt down the temple, regurgitating soup from your kindergarten school. No, it wasn't. That's sacred history. 
don't believe what they're telling you, dig a little deeper. Read the historians of the first and second and third century and you might find out something that is going to actually really open up your eyes and see that um, we're dealing with the same reality today. And if you don't open up your eyes to it, then you'll fall in with the masses and you will actually be deceived in this day and age because sacred history is not historical truth. Titus did not come into Jerusalem and burn down the temple in 70 of the common era. Because Josephus, who was there, actually informs us, are you ready? Oh, now, you might not like me after this. Historical truth is this, and it's going to happen, and you can see it happening in 2016. Historical truth is this. It was a false flag inside job of the Levites. What do you mean? I mean, we live in a generation when we've had Waco. We've had the Oklahoma bombing, 9-11, Sandy Hook, and the list goes on of false flags upon false flags. These are all what? Last-ditch attempts of arrested development as the new world order encircles our culture, our currency, and now even our homeschooling curriculum. The Levites burnt down the temple as a false flag because they were so afraid of the Zadokites, the Malkit Zadoks, those radical followers of James the Just, getting hold of the temple priesthood, that they destroyed it and set fire to the temple, jumping in the flames themselves, rather than the Malkit priesthood getting hold of the ascendancy and the rule of Jerusalem. That is historical truth, not sacred history. And today, we live in a culture where the Levitical hierarchy would try and burn down the truth rather than you and I walking in the Malkitzedic priesthood. They would rather burn it down, risk people denying Yahushua as the Messiah, converting to Judaism and being a part of this global cabal and getting involved with the Illuminati and all of the Bolshevik Levitical nonsense at this last temple mount that they're building in Jerusalem. They'd rather burn it all down. We have a president, a lame duck president in his last year, who'd rather burn it all down than true biblical leaders rise up and take this country back for righteousness, right? They would rather burn it all down in a false flag operation and blame it on believers than let you and I and the saints really raise up in righteousness. No, it wasn't Titus that burned down the temple. It was the Levites that burned down the temple in 70 of the common era. The Levites set fire and destroyed the temple rather than step aside and allow the 20,000 Malkitzedic zealots heralding Yahusha as king, as high priest, take over after passions erupted 
after the death of Yaakov at the temple steps. It's recorded that Titus did everything in his power to actually quench the flames. It was the corrupt Levitical priesthood under Ananas that set fire to the temple, an inside job, rather than let it fall into the followers of Yahusha and the followers of the recently martyred Yaakov, the true priesthood. Yeah, it's, it's just outrageous, isn't it? You see, history, brethren, is repeating itself. And people are just closing their... Oh, oh, that torch of the tribes, man. Oh, man, you don't want to listen. Oh, because no. oh, you know what? They're just... This fake Levitical class today are linking hands with the New World Order to practice arson, to practice arson rather than allow the truth to come out about the rightful priestly class of the Malkitzedic. They'd rather burn it all down and destroy it, deny Yahusha and go over to Judaism than let you and let you, the Malkitzedic priesthood, awaken. What is the new world order? It's order out of chaos, right? Burn it all down because they don't want you to get hold of the truth because you're exposing the lies, exposing the lies of lawlessness, but exposing the lies of this Levitical hierarchy too, exposing the lies of the globalists. And guess what? When it comes out, they'd rather burn it all down than the truth get into the hands of the righteous. The globalists are stoking the fires on the political and economical level. Who can see that? I mean, they are stoking the fires, aren't they? 2016, this is a crazy year of fires being stoked. So many are blind to the fact that the Christian Zionists and many in the Messianic movement are actually advancing their agenda unknowingly on the congregational level, willingly, listen to me, willingly on the leadership level. How do I know? Because I have been taken aside by leaders in the Messianic movement who've acknowledged what I'm teaching about the Bolsheviks, the Zionists, the Illuminati is true, but it's not preachable and it's going to destroy your ministry, Matthew. You should shut up. I have been taken aside and people acknowledge that it's the truth. They know that the Jews aren't really the Jews. It's the sin. But they're not going to agree. They're not going to teach it because the ministry is more. I've been taken aside. They're sold out because they've done these fake genealogical tests and they've built a ministry based upon their lies that they're pushing, that they've got some kind of special Levi-Aaronic blood baloney. The only blood I want to hear about is the blood of Yahusha HaMashiach. Otherwise, get away from me. Your blood is not important to me. I don't care if you're male, female, Gentile, slave or free. We're all one in Yahusha HaMashiach. And when you try and take me aside and say, oh, yes, I know what you're saying is true, but you, you, know, you might want to take that down off your website because your ministry won't grow if you teach. I don't care. 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I got offered, I got offered hell in a hand when I was at Calvary Chapel and I declined it. And you can offer me hell in a hand today and I'll decline it again. Because I know, because S.A. Tan offered it to Yahushua, right? You just answer them with a word and then you leave. You don't get into a debate. That's all I do. And I answered with Matthew 5, 17. No, I won't take a church out in states and funded by the church. Because I cannot teach against the laws of Moses and I cannot teach the pre-tribulation rapture. I said that in 2000 and when? 11 years ago. And when I'm taken aside just recently and acknowledged that what I'm teaching is the truth, that yes, but you shouldn't be. There's other things. It's a side issue. No, it's not a side issue. The restoration of the two houses of Israel is a side issue, okay? We've taught that for a decade. I think most of us understand it's not everything is about the reunification of the tribes. Yes, Yahweh will do that, but I'm not going to do that. So now we've got people talking about the reunification of the tribes like their ministry is going to do it, and then you're all going to buy in and fund in, and you're all going to go over to Israel. Great. Zephaniah tells you what will happen on the seacoast of Israel. You don't want to be there. What a crazy world. This is supposed to be an introduction to the homily of Yaakov. I went totally AWOL. (laughs) The fall of the temple was directly connected to the killing of Yaakov the Zadik. Josephus writes this. This, from, this is from War 2, 425 to 9. The Jews were even burning down their own temple and then jumping into the flames. It was an inside job. The last things the Levitical sellouts, the hierarchy wanted, was the followers of James the Just to grasp hold of the priesthood and teach this message. So they burned it all down. You and I live in the same generation where people are doing the very same things today. Try and take me aside privately and twist my arm to come alongside. It's outrageous. And I've just got to realize that my upbringing and the way that I was, it was all Yahweh knew. Yahweh knew. Because I can't believe that people get behind the pulpit and they capitulate to this stuff. they got no character or they just like go along with... They're just... I don't know what it is. No backbone. Scared of being... I don't know what it is. But to me, it just, just gets me fired up when people try and twist my arm and do all that. You know? I don't get it. I just, I, I'm glad I don't get it at all. Yahushua is the temple, we know that. And there is strong parallels with the death of Yahushua and the destruction of the temple. These parallels are astounding. Let me touch on these parallels. Now we know the truth, historical truth, that the temple was actually destroyed by the Jews, burning it down themselves and then jumping into the flames, according to Josephus, in War 2, 425 to 9. 
Yahusha is the temple. Titus destroyed Jerusalem, but the temple was burnt against the consent of Caesar. Just as Yahusha was destroyed against the consent of the Roman governor, wasn't he? Look at the parallels that are going to come out. Yahusha is the temple, right? Do you see the parallels? And who was it who wanted to destroy Yahusha? The priestly class. The Jews wanted to destroy Yahusha. And as the prophet Jeremiah declared, how exactly did they want to destroy Yahusha? They wanted to burn down the very tree that Yahusha's body was nailed to, just as they did with the temple a few years later. Hebrews 12.2 says that the tree was even reckoned to be a shame. Had it not been for Joseph of Arimathea, Yahusha would have been burnt along with the tree. Look what the prophet Jeremiah says in the 11th chapter and the 9th verse. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, let us destroy the tree. Let us destroy the eights, the tree. That's the tree of execution with the fruit on it. Well, Yahushua is the fruit on the tree, right? Let us destroy the tree with the fruit on it and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be no more remembered. You see, the Jews, believing Yahushua was cursed, they wanted to cleanse the land before Passover. And how do you cleanse the land? Possessions or things touched by the accursed were to be burnt, were they not? The golden calf, Achan. So the tree of punishment was itself accursed, according to Hebrews, and it was to be burnt with the accursed on it, Joshua 7.15. The authorities full well planned to burn Yahusha's body on the tree. If Joseph of Arimathea hadn't have taken him down, he would have been burnt upon the tree as well. You and I, we are inheritors of the generation of that that would rather embrace the temple of Messiah. They don't want to embrace the temple of Messiah. What would they rather do? They'd rather erect their own temple and re-embrace ritual bloodletting. That's what they'd rather do. Today, people within the Messianic movement espouse the teaching of the heirs of the Pharisees pictured in the New Testament, the ones who took over Judaism by default seven and a half years after Yaakov's judicial murder at the hands of the corrupt Aaronic priesthood. We're going full long head cycle into the apocalypse. We truly are. Over 20,000 believers, they were amassing under the leadership of Yaakov, who was recognized as the perfectly holy and righteous one, the just one in the temple. Over 20,000 people under one party were opposing the Herodian Roman establishment from the more violent and extreme 
to the less so ranged. You see, Yaakov, he functioned as bishop and priest of the opposition alliance of the New World Order. He was opposing the New World Order at the time, which was the Romans and the Herodians and the corrupt Levitical class. Today, today we have over 20 thousand people that have listened to just the introduction of the Melchizedek series. Over 20,000 people that have listened to just the introduction of the Melchizedek series that is exposing the very lies of those who hold to the status quo. This Torah Levitical hierarchy, these New World Order sellouts. This is amazing to me. In the Qumran, they would have known Yaakov as the Merkabah, or the overseer, the priest commanding the many, the role accorded to the Torah of righteousness, the teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is amazing. Finishing up here, to Hippolytus. I'm just going to call him Hippopotamus. The group always connected to Yaakov, according to this historian, what we know as those who followed the priesthood of Yeshua were later led by Yaakov. They were called by a name. How many today, people come up to you and they go, what are you? Are you a Christian? And you're like, well, no, no, no. Well, are you Jewish? Well, no, 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 no. And you're like, well, what are those strings hanging from the side of your truck? Well, you know, I mean, it's like, what are you? Who are you? And we, it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm uh, and we come up with all these different names and it changes over each time that we get into another scriptural study and you're like, well, you know. And, people, and then when you really start telling people, they just glass over and they're like, oh, I should never have, because they don't really want to know, right? They don't really want to know. But according to Hippotelius, <laughs> that's a hard one for me, I'm sorry, Hippopotamus, we know that those early believers were called Nassenes. Nassenes. It's a combination of Nazarenes and Essenes, the priesthood of the Malkitzedic. We find this in chapter 5, verse 1, and 10, 5 of the historian's writings. So there's your answer, taken right out of the passages of history, the pages of history. What are you? Are you Jewish? You start start talking about paganism and people are like, were you Jehovah Witness? Like, no, 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 no. Well, what are you then? Are you Christian? You said, no, you're a Nassim. I like it. A Nassim, right? Right from the pages of history. So as we close today, I'm excited to get into chapter 1 next week, but I truly believe it was important to set the stage as we get into this, that we just don't run headlong into the text without realizing the world that we live in and the world that Yaakov, James the Just, lived in. Because in reality, there was a higher and lower clergy at that time. The Jerusalem priesthood consisted of a sacerdotal aristocracy, where the priests were divided into a higher and lower clergy. The lower clergy, they had been antagonized by the upper clergy. How? By depriving them of their tithes, which was their only source of income. So the lower clergy became known as the meek, the poor, 
or those of the way because they had had their tithes stolen from them from the higher clergy. Because of this action, the lower clergy then became what's known as the Zadokai or the Zealot sympathizers. Some fled to Damascus, which isn't Syria. Damascus is Qumran. And they joined forces with the Zadokite zealots, and they joined the Jerusalem assembly. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 tells us that. James, the brother of Yahushua, he had heavily influenced this lower priesthood. And as you can see it and hear it in his writings, as he reaches out and he has this sympathy for the poor, this sympathy for those of the way, and he has a heart for those that have been ripped off by the higher, higher clergy. He has this animosity against the rich and influential because they were entrenched within the higher order or the new world order of their day. Is it any different for us? You see, the final months before the siege of 70 of the common era, the lower priesthood stopped the daily sacrifices. Listen. Before the final months of the siege of 70 of the common era, the lower priesthood stopped the daily sacrifice because they had been influenced by this homily of Yaakov the just, James the just, the teacher of righteousness. They'd been influenced and they had become zealous, zealous for the Torah. At this time, the practice was so far removed from even the book of the law Because the higher priesthood, they weren't offering sacrifices to Yahuwah. And that's what you've got to come to grips with this this new world order temple. They're not going to be offering sacrifices to Yahuwah. They weren't offering sacrifices to Yahuwah before the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. People think they were. People teach that they were. But they weren't. The sacrifices were being offered on behalf of the emperor and the Roman people. It was offerings to the new world order. It's being hijacked. Nothing new under the sun. This is what we are to expect and anticipate in this generation. So I am so blessed that we don't just have to go along with our eyes closed, that we have the word of Yahuwah to guide us. And I truly believe that as we get into the book of James, it is going to guide us and help us through the days that we live. Because truly, there's the wheel at Kadesh Barnea. Within the wheel that was before 70 of the common era, and we are spinning in that third wheel that I believe is 2016, 2017, where we are going to see a huge shift in the world that we live in. And we need to be prepared. And the only way we can be prepared isn't with fanciful words, but is with the word of Yahuwah being alive and spoken to this generation. Amen? Questions, comments? Any? Yes. Um, we do have four questions. And, and this is just a clarification. This was actually from Mario. 
Um, how is it that Melchizedek were still participating in the practice of the Jewish temple sacrifices? You mentioned Zadok, the Zedekites were um, trying to build the wall for the uh, against Herod. I guess it was. Yeah, history does um, tell us that there was the temple wall affair. Um, there was, as we know from Maaseh Shlachim, Acts chapter 6, and we even know from the, uh, the testimony of Paul, this is the generation that was on the cusp of transitioning from the book of the law into the book of the covenant reality. And because they were that cusp generation, Yaakov, when he taught a return to fidelity Torah, he was mainly, many times, as was Shaul, misunderstood as being against the law. So we've got to understand that there's this cusp period. How that all plays out, we'll see as we get later on into the book. But what we do understand from history is that temple wall affair was basically righteous indignation against the um, Herodian and Herod. Time period. Yes. Okay. What is the reference for the truth of the temple being an inside job? Because that was very huge. Oh, it's huge, isn't it? That is from Josephus' war, and I think I quoted it a couple of times for you. Let me give it to you again. Um, Yeah, that's from Josephus' war 2, 425 through verse 9. Yeah, 425, 2.425 through 9. And I'll quote it again to you. Josephus writes, the Jews were even burning down their own temple and then jumping into the flames. The last question, there's one here, but I'm not going to ask that one. Um, How are the Melchizedek priests uh, going to be in charge in the land? So there's a misconception here. The first part of that is, um, I I know today that we see the rabbinics in charge. Where are the Levites? And the second part of that is, how are the Melchizedek priests going to be in charge of the land? And that's just a question in general. Yeah, I I think that, you know, you're talking about prophecy and eschatology at that point. I believe if you look in Zephaniah, you look in Zechariah, you're going to see. And then as we spoke in the past weeks, we look in the book of Yasha, we also see how Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, the sons of Yosef, they left Egypt early. They left the world early and they were slaughtered by the way. I believe we're going to see these Zionists, these Messianic Zionists who think that the state of Israel is biblical Israel. They're going to leave this nation early, go over to Israel, and actually end up in the destruction, which will be from Ashkelon all the way up the um, west coast of Israel. And they'll be destroyed. Two-thirds will be destroyed, and a third left in the land. There'll be the cleansing of the land, and then there'll be border expansion, and then the Malkitzedics come back, the sons of Yosef, who have the rightful deed to the land, because, of course, we know that Yaakov put Israel on Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Judah never had the right to the name Israel. So, you know, we've done many teachings of that. Of course, that's what, why people hate us, and um, that's okay. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> I tell you, who would have thunk it? Praise Yahweh, though, for the Ruach HaKodesh inside of us all, that we fear not, we go strong, and we keep on walking that narrow road with lawlessness on the right and rabbinical Torah on the left. We do. Covenant fidelity Torah, the Malkitzedic sons of Yahweh. Amen. Be blessed. Shalom.